When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Back with part two of our final spring wraparound here. We did a lot in part one. We had to break this up. There were so many spring football games this past Saturday. Spring football basically over for everybody now. So if you listen to part one, I hope you did. Notre Dame, Texas, Utah, Oregon covered in part one. In part two, a lot of Big 12 a lot of Pac-12 games this past Saturday. They were a little later than some of the SEC and Big Ten teams. Well, there is a Big Ten team in here. We're going to start off with Oklahoma that Lincoln Riley left, and then we're going to go right into USC where Lincoln Riley is now. And then after that, we'll get to Penn State, the last Big Ten team that we checked in with, and then we'll finish up with a Big 12 double dip, Oklahoma State and Baylor. So we did four teams in part one. We're doing five here. And then we'll get back to other stuff. But we wanted to bring you this info. We wanted to bring on lots of smart people who have covered these teams, who are there for all of it, the quarterback competitions, where they're better, where they're worse. Do these teams look like potential college football playoff contenders? We'll start with Ryan Aber of the Oklahoman talking about the Oklahoma Sooners right now on the College Football Survivor Show. And now time for some Oklahoma football with Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman. Ryan, you've been doing this for a long time. How many years covering the Sooners now? Oh, gosh. I guess uh, this is coming up on 10, I guess. Nice. So it's been a, been a decade. It's gone by fast and, and slow all at the same time. I'm sure you can understand that. I would imagine. Uh, and I expect you'll be leaving for Los Angeles any day now, right? You probably had your <laughs> fill. No. Uh, Ryan Aber is sticking around. He's seen a lot of Oklahoma football. He was there along with about 75,000 other people at Oklahoma's spring game on Saturday. Is that an indication, Ryan, that Oklahoma fans, Lincoln Riley era over, Brent Venables era has begun? Are they feeling good about the program? Was that, I mean, sometimes I actually like spring games and spring game attendance. I think it's a good cheap way for people to go watch their team. But I know sometimes spring game attendance stuff, people don't care about that. This, I from afar, this meant something. It looked like to me that like, hey, it's not like people abandoned Oklahoma just because the coach left. Yeah, I think no doubt about it. It's an indication that, uh, that people were energized by Brent Venables, especially with everything that happened with Lincoln Riley leaving and the uncertainty really in that week uh, after that. But Brent Venables has energized this fan base in a, in a a major way. I think it's because of his track record, what he's done, not only at OU when he was there the first time, but also what he's done at Clemson, the, uh, the, the excitement around Jeff Levy's offense and and what that's going to look like. And then also the fact that Baker Mayfield, the, the statue was unveiled and, and he was back for that certainly juiced that attendance number up as well. They made it a really big recruiting weekend for them and it, it paid off in a major way. I think a lot of us expected them to set the OU spring game record, which previously was about 55,000, but they absolutely blew the doors off that with uh, 
north of 75,000 there having to open up both upper decks. So a much different vibe in the stadium than we've seen in previous spring games. And, you know, this wasn't one of those things where they just open it up and you can get in for free. They actually charge for tickets now, not, okay. a, 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 you know, a great amount, but uh, still we're able to make some money off of it as well. Good. I, I like when people are excited about their college football teams in the spring. I think that matters. It's a lovely day to spend with the family. You get to see a legend like Baker Mayfield. Good day. Good day in Norman for everybody. Even you, Ryan. I'm sure you had a a lovely time uh, (laughs) hanging out there. So let's talk quarterback. We know Caleb Williams is now at USC with Lincoln Riley. who's a five-star recruit who took over for Spencer Rattler last year. I mean, to think, Ryan, a year ago that Oklahoma had Spencer Rattler and Caleb Williams coached by Lincoln Riley, and now all three are gone. But Dylan Gabriel from UCF, right, got a lot of action and looked the part, did he not? Yeah, he, he really did. Now, he got his full dose of Oklahoma wind on Saturday because it mm. was really uh, whipping through there. But it's not going to ever be worse than that uh, during a, a game day. But he handled it well. He handled the atmosphere well. You see the, the, the arm strength, the accuracy out of him the familiarity with Jeff Levy's offense that he ran there at UCF, the tempo of that is so much different from what they've been running the last few years here. So yeah, they feel really good about uh, the the way that the quarterback situation shook out as far as the top of it, Uh, you know, being able to get Gabriel after you lose Spencer Rattler and uh, Caleb Williams was pretty incredible to have a guy who was that familiar with what OU was wanting to do and that's successful on the field. Now behind that, things get a little bit dicey because uh, really probably their backup is going to be right now Nick Evers, a, a freshman who they do feel pretty good about in the future, but he is a freshman, never played a, a college snap, and he's not coming in nearly as highly acclaimed as either Caleb Williams or Spencer Rattler were. Uh, so you know it might take him a little bit of time, which is why Brent Venables didn't rule out going back to the transfer portal this week for some uh, quarterback experience, if there's a guy available who it would make sense to bring in. I do think this happens sometimes, Ryan, right? Especially in coaching transition with the freedom that players have. When Ryan Day took over at Ohio State, they got Justin Fields as a transfer. They didn't have a backup quarterback that year in 2019. And you play your starter and you hold on for dear life and hope that he gets through it. And then you recruit under him and make sure you're set for year two. But Brent Venables and Jeff Levy might just have to cross their fingers, put Dylan Gabriel in in bubble wrap and say, let's get through this year because this is how it's going to work. When you have transition, your quarterback room is probably going to get a little jacked up in this day and age. Yeah. And heck, honestly, not even with coaching transition, just period. Yep. You, you see this happen a lot where, where guys uh, want to start and they have an opportunity to start elsewhere. So they they make the move. Uh, quicker and and obviously the the coaching transition sort of uh, exacerbates that even more. But uh, yeah, OU's experienced it a few years ago with Baker Mayfield when uh, they brought in Austin Kendall as a, a freshman. He had to serve as the backup, and and yeah, they were uh, during that that 2016 season. Mayfield's second of three years uh, starting for the Sooners. It was one of those uh, just hold their breath things and hope that. Uh, nothing else happened because that was a year that Kyler Murray mm. had to sit out after transferring. And, um, you know, they had to roll their roll the dice with keeping Baker Mayfield healthy, didn't run him 
uh, nearly as much. Luckily for them, they were able to get out of it. But been a long time since OU has had an injury at quarterback that led to some significant lost playing time. But uh, you know, so at some point that luck is going to run out. Yeah, and uh, Sooners fans certainly hoping that it's not this season with uh, you know what they've got behind Dylan Gabriel right now. So interesting. I ask the same questions to everybody, but you're you're doing a 180 at Oklahoma from Lincoln Riley to Brent Venables from offense to defense. So when I say, where's Oklahoma going to be better in 2022? This has been a team that has a championship, that had a championship level offense every year and has been held back most of the time by its defense. And now you're bringing in as your new head coach, arguably the best defensive coordinator in the country. Is the answer something defensive that that's where Oklahoma will improve the most this season? Yeah, I think it's got to be. I mean, you just look at the physicality up front for them, especially, you know, they've had some decent defensive linemen. You know, Perrion Winfrey will be uh, one of, if not their highest uh, pick in next week's uh, NFL or this week's NFL draft. It comes at you quick. But, uh, uh, you know, they haven't had the depth up front uh, that, that they've really shown to this point this year. Now, some of it is, you know, see how some of those transfers react. A guy like, uh, uh, you know, Jeffrey Johnson transferred from uh, Tulane. and got Jonah uh, Laulu transferred from Hawaii. Those guys are making pretty significant jumps up in terms of week-to-week competition. But to this point, uh, they've done a good job. Uh, but just just the physicality, the the difference in the defensive schemes up front, when you talk about the defensive lines with the way that they're able to bring pressure with what uh, Ted Roof and, and Brent Venables are doing uh, up there versus what Alex Grinch did a year ago, uh, where it was really had gotten to be really predictable and uh, really limited as far as the way that they were able to get after quarterbacks. To me, that's going to be the biggest difference, the biggest improvement uh, on this team this year it, it is going to be just that versatility on the defensive side that they haven't seen uh, in, in a long, long time. And then the other side of that. So you say, okay, where will Oklahoma be not quite as good? Now, again, that's a little bit of a loaded question because this was a team that had the Heisman favorite entering last year, and then Spencer Rattler didn't play that well. So we do know the talent that has been there at quarterback, the talent that has been there at receiver, the talent that's been at running back for Oklahoma. But do you expect a step back offensively, or could Jeff Levy with a veteran like Dylan Gabriel running the show keep this offense rolling? Well, I think certainly they've got a chance to keep it rolling and still be a really good offense, but uh, there are areas where you can see a step back. First of all, uh, on the offensive line, they they lost a couple of uh, really experienced guys, especially at tackle, that they've got to replace uh, up there. But the area that I circle is, is one that's probably most likely to take a step backwards. It isn't a quarterback, although I, I think – uh, you know, the 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 high end uh, of the quarterback position is going to be a little bit muted. You know, okay. Spencer Rattler and, and Caleb Williams weren't fantastic on balance last year, but they were electric at times. And I, I think you know, maybe that's that's not what Dylan Gabriel is going to be. He might be a little bit more consistent uh, than those guys, especially with the experience. But the area that I circle for them as far as maybe taking a step back is running back. Okay, where uh, you know they lose Kennedy Brooks, who was fantastic for them and a really underrated back, uh, a three three year a thousand yard uh, rusher uh, for them. 
they've got some talent there with Eric Gray, a transfer from Tennessee, didn't have the kind of year that they hoped he would have last year, but Kennedy Brooks filled a, a lot of that gap. And then they've got Marcus Major, a guy who was out for most of last year, um, has been uh, banged up during the spring, but they still feel really good about his ability, but he hasn't proven it week to week on the field. He had a, a big bowl game, but that's really been about it for him the last couple of years was the Alamo Bowl uh, last year and the Cotton Bowl the year before. And then Javante Barnes, a, a freshman from Las Vegas, who, again, they feel really good about, but really inexperienced, uh, you know, hasn't. Uh, faced uh, faced a college competition at all. So uh, to me, those would be the two biggest areas of concern when you talk about uh, running backs and, and the offensive line, although it's hard to uh, uh, imagine Bill Biedenboe's group taking too much of a step back, but uh, certainly that's going to be an area to watch here uh, you know, over the next few months. Kennedy Brooks underrated by me. Among other people, we did a, a running back draft before last season among the contenders. And I had Kennedy Brooks really low. And my co-host Shahan Jaharaja yelled at me for having Kennedy Brooks, for disrespecting Kennedy Brooks. And he was right. And I was wrong. So that's like a guy who's carried a big part of the load for Oklahoma. Uh, just the, I, I just I'm not alone here. I know I think everybody in the country, Ryan, is fascinated by it. this is about as much coping coaching whiplash as a fan base can go through, both in the way that Lincoln Riley left and then in the style of head coach that you have, that the transition again from an offensive guru to a defensive guru, is everybody okay now? Like are the fans, were they on edge for a couple months? Were they mad when Lincoln Riley left and ready to embrace Brent Venables? Were they uncertain? Were they just, did they have to sit in their room with the curtains drawn because they were so upset? Are they now, are they fired up about Brent Venables? Like where is everybody now that, it's kind of settled a little bit and everyone gets the summer and then you come back in August and get ready to go. Yeah. I think you talk about all those emotions and and you said uh, over the last few months, I think all those emotions happen in about an eight day span <laughs> for, for Sooners fans. Now they're still fired up about Lincoln Riley. And uh, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, upset Sooners fans at all, just, just mention his name and uh, they get really fired up and really defensive. But, the the fact is that the transition to Bob Stoops, first of all, the in the interim and uh, the bowl preparation helped settle this fan base some. And then uh, the way that Brent Venables was able to come in and uh, not only fire up the fan base, but also keep the team largely intact. Yes, they had some transfers, especially that group to USC. But, uh, you know, given the fact that how how much it looked like the sky was falling when Lincoln Riley left, to be able to keep the team intact, put together a, a, a solid recruiting class for uh, how how fast that they had to do that, including keeping a linebacker, uh, Kobe McKenzie, who sort of immediately flipped to Texas from OU, and then they were able to to flip him back. You know, all of that I think really settled down, and the familiarity with Brent Venables and the the guys that he uh, kept and brought aboard, we're able to really settle things down here in Norman. Now, it's still going to be a, a great transition. You know, we'll see how they're able to handle that in the short term, how successful they're, they're uh, going to be able to be immediately. But I think a lot of OU fans feel maybe even better about the long-term health of this program mm -hmm. uh, as they look to that move to the SEC eventually because of Brent Venables 
his uh, his experience, his track record, uh, you know, the the areas that they knew they needed to make improvements on uh, defensively. Uh, a lot of those things are much more realistic for for the, most fans now uh, than they were a few months ago. As, as much as they love Lincoln Riley and don't get it wrong, OU fans adored Lincoln Riley, which is why they were so hurt when he left. Uh, you know, this is sort of like the uh, Kevin Durant part two for for Oklahoma folks, oh. uh, as far as just feeling spurned by him. But uh, but they do feel uh, a lot. Most people feel pretty good about uh, you know where things are headed. You know, given what lies ahead for this program. That's really good. I, I hadn't thought that so many of these fans went through a similar getting the the rug ripped out from under you with Kevin Durant. And now here you go with Lincoln Riley. Um, all right. Last thing. So eight years of the playoff, Oklahoma has been in four times. There have been four teams that have dominated playoff, the playoff so far, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio state, and Oklahoma making the playoff half the time. That's no easy feat, manageable non-conference schedule, big 12. Who knows? Is this a playoff contending team in year one of Brent Venables, not guaranteeing one of the four spots, but in the mix where Oklahoma fans in November will be watching those playoff rankings saying, oh, okay, where are we? We've got to do this and positioning. Will they get to experience that again? Yeah, I think certainly they've got a, a really good shot to. Now, I don't know that this is a team that's going to contend to uh, break through and finally win a playoff game uh, for OU. Uh, although, uh, you know, I, I think everything I said before about them, the direction they're heading, uh, you know, I think they've got a good chance to eventually break through that uh, here in the not too distant future. But uh, it, you, everything you mentioned, the schedule, the way it lines out, you know, Nebraska is the the big uh, their marquee non conference game, and that's more about the past than it is about uh, this team this year. You wouldn't anticipate would uh, you know give the Sooners much problems. The Big Twelve schedule, the way it lines out, you know, really if they're able to get past Texas. You feel a whole lot better about their chances. Clearly, you know that the Bedlam game is always going to be one that's going to uh, be circled and and you're going to watch out for. But um, uh, yeah, they've certainly got a chance to uh, uh, make a playoff again this year. But at, at this point, OU fans are, are looking toward uh, finally breaking through and having some success in that playoff. Like I said, I don't think that happens this year, but uh, you know certainly. Uh, they're uh, heading in a, a direction that would make it more likely to actually have success because, you know, those four programs you mentioned have been fantastic, but clearly there's a dividing line there between the the, the, the three others and OU when you talk about uh, playoff success. He's Ryan Aber. He knows the Sooners better than anybody. If you want to read about Oklahoma, and I want to, because I think I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Brett Venables waited and waited and waited and waited and waited for the right job. And this is the right job. It's the right job for him. It's the right job for the program. You get a great offensive coordinator. You fill some holes with the transfer portal. So you don't necessarily have to have that step back year that a lot of first year coaches sometimes do. Even Nick Saban went seven and six in his first year. Brent Venables isn't going to go seven and six. And then you establish who you are and you get rolling. Oklahoma is going to stay in the playoff mix for years to come. Ryan Aber, thanks so much for your time and joining us here on the college football survivor show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Doug. Now time to get into some USC football. Big spring crowd for the Trojans on Saturday in L.A. It's Matt Zemeck who joins us. He's the editor 
of Trojans Wire in the USA Today Network. Matt, thanks for taking time out of your day. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Doug. So this is like this is over 30,000 for a spring game at USC, which is big for USC. It seems like people, I don't know, a little bit fired up, would you say? No doubt. And uh, fans are very happy with how the spring game turned out. And, and you know, it's just like it's like having manna in the desert. Right. You've lived through Clay Helton for several years. And the the thing about the Clay Helton era, you might be aware of this uh, covering national college football as you do. But just, you know, if you haven't been really close to the USC program in recent years, the thing to understand is that when Clay Helton would say something Uh, about a USC player or about the USC coaching staff or about anything that was happening within the program, there would always be this reflectively, reflexively, instinctively optimistic take. And the reality on the ground did not match the Mm. sunshine pumping optimism that was coming out of Clay Helton's mouth. So here with Lincoln Riley, you know, he's, he's willing to praise players and his fellow coaches, but not until they've actually earned it. And you can see that the players have worked to make progress. Uh, They've worked to improve themselves. Uh, You know, this is NFL draft week, of course. And it's just been a a massive drop off from the Pete Carroll era in like the second and third rounds of the NFL draft. Like the Ohio States, the Georgias, the Alabamas, they stuff the top 100 picks. Uh, with players and that there's been none of that under Clay Helton. You'll have an occasional first round pick, you know, an Elijah Vera Tucker and Austin Jackson, but on day two, it's, it's virtual crickets. And so player development has lacked so far behind under Helton. And now you get Lincoln Riley, who has churned out great offensive players at Oklahoma from Kyle Murray to CD lamb to, to various others and USC fans can just see the difference. They can see the actual coaching that's going on now. They, when, when the coaching staff speaks, they can trust what's being said. They know that the coach is not trying to just say things people want to hear. He's saying things with, that match the reality on the ground. And really to just kind of lead into the spring game, Doug, and, and the big story coming out of it, one of the, one of the really big stories is that the spring game matched the pr- previous several weeks of spring practice. Players were okay. physical. They were emotionally invested. Uh, they, they really got after it. Um, practices under Helton were extremely charm and soft. Didn't really prepare the, the a USC team for the rigors of the season. So the talk is matching the reality. Players are buying in. The, the, the actual quality of coaching is so greatly improved. You didn't have any turnovers in that game. There was an interception wiped out by a penalty. There weren't very many penalties uh, either. You can just see that the quality of coaching is so much better. And fans are trusting that that massive leap from Clay Helton all the way to Lincoln Riley, you know, not from Helton to kind of like a mid-level coach and then to Riley. Uh, No, it's directly from Helton right to, to Lincoln Riley. Fans are trusting that that the massive distance covered by that change is what's going to catapult USC into the playoff conversation this season. Matt, when we look at 
at what the effect is so far of Lincoln Riley. I was looking, one of your stories at Trojans Wire is talking about the recruiting momentum that USC is gaining. They only have five recruits so far in the class of 2023. Three they got really early, and they're three five-star guys. They've gotten two here in April. Do you imagine this is going to start to pop even more now that I'm sure they had people out for this for the spring, for the spring game, now that some of the best players in the country are getting eyes on what it looks like, what USC looks like with Lincoln Riley in charge. What do you imagine is going to happen on, on the recruiting front for the Trojans coming up? Yeah, you know, USC has had its share of defeats on the recruiting trail in the 2022 cycle. You know, Dan Lanning and Oregon beating out Lincoln Riley for Josh Connerly, the five-star yep. offensive tackle. That was a big blow. You know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's good for uh, website uh, editors such as myself to say, you know what, this actually was a big recruiting loss. Instead of just shrugging it off and say, ah, we really didn't want him anyway, or nah, it's not that big a deal. It actually was a very big deal. But the thing is that Lincoln Riley didn't have like a full recruiting cycle at USC. But, you know, for the 2023 class, he can really, you know, make a full on sales pitch to a lot of recruits. And I've seen uh, some recruits after the spring game, the first 36 hours, you know, they've narrowed down their final teams to a a very short list that has USC on it, like an elite pass rusher narrowed his list down to USC and Michigan. Uh, you had another uh, Nebraska transfer defensive lineman take an official visit to USC, and he was absolutely wowed by uh, what he saw over the weekend. You have other recruits setting their official visits for USC right on the heels of this weekend. So, you know, if people are wondering if the spring game is a big deal or if it meant anything, yeah, recruits noticed. They they saw Caleb Williams making plays. They saw a physical defense get smoked in the first half of that spring game, but then respond in the second half and get several stops Uh, players around the country noticed what was happening on an ESPN national broadcast. And so this is going to carry through the off season and Lincoln Riley and his staff, which has a lot of Texas ties recruiting the state of Texas is going to be really important for this staff. You know, they'll be able to establish a base and make the gains in 2023 that they weren't able to make in 2022. And of course, which Clay Helton, wasn't able to come close to making it all. All right, let's get to the quarterback. Caleb Williams was with Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma last year as a five-star recruit, took over for Spencer Rattler, comes with Lincoln Riley to USC, 10 of 12 in the spring game for 98 yards. Did he show people what everybody wanted to see from Caleb Williams? And what do you think, Matt, we're talking about? What is the potential of what this guy could be for the Trojans this fall? He definitely checked the box in terms of giving fans and, and, and program observers what they wanted to see. Uh, he made a throw in the first half of the spring game off his back foot under pressure. A guy was getting in his face, coming up the middle, slightly to his right, uh, made a throw off his back foot, dropped the ball perfectly in the bucket to uh, Terrell Bynum uh, on the right, on the right sideline for a sizable gain. And the, the thing about Caleb Williams is that you know, people will say correctly enough. You alluded to it yourself, Doug. That you know he's he's under Lincoln Riley's system, so he doesn't have to learn uh, the offense from the ground up. He already has a working knowledge of that, so that that's obvious. But the other thing is, he has a natural feel that you can't teach. He makes certain kinds of plays that just come instinctively. Uh, you know, like a Patrick Mahomes. I'm not saying he's going to be as good as Patrick Mahomes is, but he has that same instinctive kind of quality. I mean, he just glides very smoothly in and around the pocket, you know, moving, stepping up in the pocket, 
moving right in the pocket. He does that very naturally. Like he's not looking over his shoulder. He, he just feels pressure. He, he's able to sense where the play is evolving. He's able to see the geometry of the field at a level that other, other uh, quarterbacks don't do. So his ceiling is immensely high. Now, you know, the limitation really that he faces, it's not so much his own game, his own skill set. It's the USC offensive line, which has a very good mm. first unit. You know, the five starters, they did very well. They kept his pocket clean in the spring game. But USC has only 13 scholarship offensive linemen, and only eight of them were able-bodied through the whole spring session over the past four weeks. So, uh, you know, Bobby Haskins, a transfer from Virginia, he's one of the only uh, prominent offensive linemen that USC grabbed in the transfer portal. He was not part of spring practices. So when they get him in August, they'll get a few more bodies, but – you know, this is why the Josh Connerly swing and miss was was really bad is because, you know, they were counting on Connerly being able to eat up snaps uh, probably as a backup at the start of the season. But then eventually maybe as a starter uh, in October, let's say. So they really need bodies up front. They need to get a second uh, string on the depth chart for their offensive line, which can really compete because the second stringers, which played in the spring game, they did not do particularly well. It's not surprising that they didn't do well, but they're just very inexperienced. They're very thin. They need a lot of reinforcements. And so, you know, if one of the starting offensive linemen goes down with an injury in September before they play Utah in mid-October in Salt Lake City, like that is the big uh, scenario that USC hopes to avoid. Like that's the nightmare that's just around the corner if this program can't get some some more bodies on the offensive line to make sure that Caleb Williams is kept clean during the season. That's really the big thing that he and the rest of the program has to worry about. So if we're talking about even where, like where USC could even take a step back from last year, right? Everything's trending up. This is the new era of USC football, but is that is offensive line, the biggest area, obviously they're losing Drake London as a receiver, probably first round, certain first round pick in the NFL draft, Drake Jackson, edge rusher, probable second round pick. Not not really losing many other guys to the NFL. Where's where's the biggest area of concern or the biggest area where USC might not be as good as a year ago? It sounds like offensive line is is at least one of the things to be worried about. Depth is really the, the concern on the offensive line. In terms, if you're thinking about quality, just raw quality at a position group, it's defensive line. Okay. Because okay. that that group was a disaster last year under Todd, defensive coordinator Todd Orlando. Teams came into the Los Angeles Coliseum and put up 40 points or more on a routine basis. Stanford, which really wasn't all that good, put up over 40. Oregon State put up over 40. UCLA put up over 40. Utah, of course, put up over 40. So that defensive line was just Swiss cheese. It was gashed the whole season. And there really haven't been a lot of reinforcements. Now, you know, you're trying to, the coaching staff is trying to bring along Corey Foreman, the, the highly touted recruit. Um, but, you know, he was not coached very well last year, so he's behind schedule in his overall development. And this is why defensive line really is the number one concern among all position groups at USC. It's very simple. You can appreciate it, Doug. It's, it's, it's readily obvious that if the defensive line isn't at least serviceable, isn't competent, yep. doesn't have to be A+, plus, just if it can at least play at like a, a B-minus type level then opponents are going to keep the ball for 38, 40 minutes a game. And Caleb Williams is going to watch on the sidelines, uh, you know, with a, with a, with a cap or a visor on his head. And that's how USC is going to lose. You know, USC is going to win 
with Caleb Williams winning, uh, you know, a bunch of 45-38, uh, 38-31 type games. If, if he's getting just 20 minutes of time of possession each game, USC's not going to be able to score 40 points uh, and win the shootouts. That's going to play a lot of, um, you know, because the, the defense is not going to be especially good, not in year one. Like we, we, everyone at USC recognizes that. USC in 2022 is a team that's built to win shootouts. But if, but if uh, Caleb Williams is kept to the sidelines, you know, and other teams can control games and control the ball. That's how USC is going to lose. So the defensive line, that is the, the the ultimate crisis point in terms of a position group on this roster. Just the Lincoln Riley style of offense, his, his coaching acumen, his play calling. Is that where we should see the greatest improvement from a USC team that was four and eight last year is, are they just going to put up more points because Lincoln Riley's dialing it up? Uh, well, it's Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams running the show. I, you yeah. know, the fact that you have Caleb Williams being able to, you know, instantly pick up where he left off with Riley at Oklahoma last year, it's really the combination. Because if, you know, Jackson Dart, as you know, transferred to Ole Miss, if Caleb Williams had not uh, come to USC from Oklahoma, USC would ha- have to either get a, a transfer quarterback or it would have to hand the keys to Miller Moss, you know, who made a few nice plays in the spring game, but, but is nowhere near Caleb Williams, not just in terms of raw talent, but also just in terms of his developmental progress. Uh, you know, having Miller Moss as the starter, then I would be saying that USC would be like a six and six, okay. maybe seven and five at best team. It's Caleb Williams more than Lincoln Riley. Uh, which gives USC the ability to pursue like a 10 and two, maybe even an 11 and one season. So four and eight last year, 22 and 21 overall, the last four years, Clay Helton let go after two games last season. That's the question here, right, Matt, that that this is USC. The PAC 12 has been shut out of the playoff far too often in the eight years of this college football playoff era. This is because USC hasn't been USC. USC should be the standard bearer of this conference, just like Clemson is in the ACC and Ohio State is in the Big Ten and Oklahoma has been and Alabama has been. Can they be a legit playoff contender right away this year? It certainly feels like maybe the schedule is a little bit on their side to make that possibility at least potentially tangible. I completely agree with you, Doug. The schedule puts it in play because USC doesn't play Oregon in the regular season, doesn't play Washington in the regular season. Uh, You know, there's the Utah game on the road. That's the game that USC will be expected to lose most likely, or at least won't be favored at kickoff time in Pac-12 play. But the, uh, you know, the, uh, the only other really tough Pac-12 road game for USC is that late September Week four game at Oregon State. I think that if, if USC can get out of Corvallis with a win, and let's keep in mind that in the Pete Carroll era, Corvallis was the stumbling block for some of the better Pete Carroll teams under Mark Sanchez and, and, uh, and you know pit players from that era. Uh, the 2004 National Championship team was able to win in Corvallis, but not in, uh, not in 2008. Uh, so if USC can solve Oregon State, I think the path is there to go 8-1 and one in the Pac-12. And USC... You know, pr- probably loses uh, at Salt Lake City. You know, in what's likely to be a night game uh, against Utah. But if USC goes eight and one, that forces Utah 
you know, to make sure to win, you know, it's other games and Utah has to go to Oregon, something that USC doesn't have to deal with. So if Utah loses at Oregon and you throw in one, if the Utes stumble in one other Pac-12 game, USC could lose to Utah, but still win the Pac-12 South Mm. uh, with Utah going seven and two, USC going eight and one. And then USC, USC or Utah, whoever wins the Pac-12 South, I think will be a clear favorite over most likely Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. You know, the, the, the Pac-12 North lost only one uh, Pac-12 championship game through 2020. But those games were played either on a campus site or mostly at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara. That, that was more of a North-friendly venue. But what did you see last year? You saw the game move to Las Vegas. We're about to see the era, in my mind, in which the center of Pac-12 power moves to the South. Now, of course, USC should be the foremost representation of that. But last year, it was Utah. Utah had a massive crowd advantage against Oregon down in Las Vegas. Uh, If Utah does win the South this year, that same dynamic would be in play uh, once again. So it's really, if USC wins the South, it probably wins the conference. And it's all going to be about that battle against Utah. Um, But the schedule really shapes up where USC is probably going to be eight and one. And I think it comes down to, does Utah match USC's eight and one, you know, with the head to head. And of course, if USC does find a way to beat Utah, then it's game, set, match. Trojans will win the South uh, if they do win in Salt Lake City. Um, So in a sense, it's a situation where, Doug, USC is not going to be expected to win that game against Utah. But if it does, USC will be in a commanding position to win the Pac-12 championship. So in terms of how the playoff sets up, this is the the harsh reality for USC in year one. You You have all the depth questions, the limitations on the roster because of all the damage that Clay Helton did. It's expecting a lot to get this team to 12 and one. And I mentioned 12 and one because there hasn't been a Pac-12 champion in the playoff uh, with two or more losses. Right. You have to go 12 and one at minimum in the Pac-12 to make the playoff. So USC is probably going to lose twice, probably going to lose that Notre Dame game uh, in late November, uh, the first uh, the first of many, we hope, uh, Lincoln Riley, Marcus Freeman games. It's, it's just it's likely that USC is going to stumble twice. Um, but so I think the you know the expectation should be win the Pac-12. Uh, in terms of how the season's going to play out, it's it's a little too much to expect the playoff. It's not too much to expect being in the mix yeah. for the playoff. I think that's the reasonable middle ground position where you set the bar in year one for Lincoln Riley at USC. We talked about both Utah and Notre Dame in part one of our wraparound this week. And I do think it's interesting, Matt, that last game of the regular season, Notre Dame at USC. I There's a shot for that to be a game between two one-loss teams that almost becomes maybe like a, like a playoff round of 16 game. You know what I mean? That like, I think if, if Notre Dame can get it, it's, it's interesting Two, I think first year coaches that people are really excited about and Marcus Freeman and Lincoln Riley, as you mentioned, there's a chance, there's a chance that that USC Notre Dame game is one of the bigger games of the year in college football. Wouldn't it be great, Matt, to see two national powers like that, who have had this great rivalry play a huge game in the last Saturday in November. 
It would, and there's so much to say about this game. I know that it's so far off, and we don't know what the records of these teams are going to be. We don't know exactly what the stakes are going to be, but certainly, yeah, we can dream a little bit about what this game could be. And, you know, one key point to make is that, you know, last year, the reason why Cincinnati got in is that it beat Notre Dame head-to-head. Like, if Cincinnati beat Oklahoma State, if Cincinnati beat any team other than Notre Dame, Notre Dame probably gets in. But because Cincinnati had the specific win over Notre Dame, there was no way to put the Irish over Cincinnati. So we could have a situation. I mean, it's plausible. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on it, but it's plausible that we could have USC and Notre Dame as basically a four seed play in game, you know, four versus five uh, at the very end of the season. The other uh, big point to make about that game. Remember, with the pandemic in 2020, USC and Notre Dame did not play each other that season. So this means that this will be the first Notre Dame-USC game at the Los Angeles Coliseum in four years. Mm. They haven't played at the Coliseum since 2018. So that just jacks up the intensity, and it's going to make that game even much more of a, of a destination and, and, a, and a mountaintop moment for a USC fan base that is starving for the return to national relevance, starving for a Pete Carroll 2.0 under Lincoln Riley. He's Matt Zemeck. You can read his work at Trojans Wire. It's in the USA Today network covering all the best teams in the country. Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us here on the College Football Survivor Show. I enjoyed it, Doug. Thanks for having me. We will be back right after this to talk more spring football on the Survivor Show. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. Five DBs for Georgia. Four of them played every snap, and William Poole played all but two. So basically, their five DBs played the whole game. Lewis Seen had the lowest grade. But he won the MVP. He won the MVP given by sports writers who are furiously trying to finish their game stories. And the people from the playoff are like, hey, do you have your vote? And they're like, ah, it's Lewis Seen. That's how it works, unfortunately. I, I would wonder what percent of the uh, defensive MVP votes were cast before oh. the final interception. Most of oh. those, probably. They're, like, asking you for your ballot with, like, 10 minutes left in the game. And you're just like, I don't know. There's a game left to happen. What are you, you know, so sometimes there's context that doesn't get captured because they need to do the logistics. What other logistics? And so, this, I think we've had this conversation. Is there somebody in the back counting up the ballots? Send you a yeah, poll, I mean, I, a digital I, poll. <laughs> Click on your MVP. Just send us a Twitter poll. Just uh, well, That's more <laughs> legitimate. At least you don't have to do it with 10 minutes left in the game. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. Joined by old friend Bob Flounders here on the College Football Survivor Show. Great Penn State beat writer. You can find him at PennLive.com in the Harrisburg Patriot News. Bob, thanks for joining us here. Great to be on the show, the new format. I think this is my, I don't know, since you've, since you've changed the show into like a, a broader, well, I don't, I, maybe I was on in the fall. If I, had, if I was, I apologize, but I, I know you're doing great things. Taking, a, taking what is this? This is like a macro look at college football. Macro. Like, Macro. Macro. And uh, yeah, that means big, a right? big, big, big believer in Doug and uh, all that you do. So happy to talk about Penn State football. Happy that spring practice is over. And uh, let's get to some good weather and we'll take it from there. Nice. And happy, happy recent birthday. Thanks, Bob, man. Bob Flanders. I, I do appreciate that. I do appreciate 58. The number is 58. Ah. Unbelievable. You look like you're in your 30s, man. It's great <laughs> to see you. Uh, maybe my view is off. 
right, so I want to talk. We all, we're talking about quarterbacks right off the bat with everybody. Yeah. And man, this is just the classic. It feels like this is happening a lot of places around the country, Bob, where there's this new five-star big-time quarterback, but there's a veteran there too. So sure. Drew Aller is a guy who elevated his entire senior year in Ohio, climbed up the charts, had a great year, might be the guy that changes the face of Penn State football. But hey, he just got there. And Sean Clifford's been around the block. What was that quarterback situation like this spring? Yeah. And did you get any indication that Drew Aller might have any kind of role in the Penn State offense this fall? Because Sean Clifford's kind of, you know, done some things and knows what he's doing. Yeah, I, I think this this is the most interesting James Franklin spring for a lot of the things that you just mentioned, Doug, Um, it has been a struggle since James has got to Penn state to get that elusive five-star quarterback to come to state college, because there's only a couple of them every year. Right. And there's a pecking order more often than not. If one of the, one of the powers that be decide they want a five-star quarterback, it's going to be real hard for Franklin and Penn state to get their mitts on one because they're not, there's not that many of them. And uh, this one is from Ohio, which I think is a little bit ironic drew Aller, but you know, it, it really, it really became interesting in December after Penn state lost to Michigan state to to conclude the regular season before the bowl game, there was a there was a, just a a flurry of announcements. A lot of them were opt out something that you're familiar with uh, at Ohio state, but a couple players had some decisions to make and Sean, uh, who is, you know, he had, he, that was his fifth season at Penn state um, part of the 2017 class. Sean announced he was going to come back for his sixth season. And I don't know that everyone was really expecting that. I mean, and I'm just talking, I'm not just talking about the fans. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't real certain that that was going to happen either. And I'm always fascinated by, what went into that? Because James Franklin just doesn't let anyone, I think, come back for a six-year. But their their lack of quarterback depth in 2021 really bit them in the backside. They did mm-hmm. not they did not adequate, adequately identify and prepare a backup quarterback to be ready to play if anything happened to Sean Clifford, and it cost them two games. Now they finished seven and six, but. Uh, they were five and zero at one point, and with Sean in the game at at uh, at Iowa, they were they were in control of that game. It was seventeen three. He had made some mistakes because he always does, and he knows he does. But they were going to win that game, and then they had a bye week, and then they had Illinois. And rather than get one of the younger guys ready to play against Illinois, they decided to get a beat up Sean Clifford ready to play. Uh, what he probably shouldn't have played. And he, he played well for a quarter. Whatever he was taken to manage the pain wore off, and he couldn't do anything the rest of the game. It cost them two games. I don't think they were ever the same. But that really, I think, did not sit well with the fan base. And I think James, would, if he, if he could ad- admit it, he would, he would say he handled that badly. Enter Drew Alar, but Sean Clifford's going to come back. So how is that going to work? They also have Christian Veyu. They had another quarterback in that class, Bo Prabula of Central York, who's a pretty good player. So how much more, the question is, do you really need to see from Sean Clifford? I mean, you have seen Sean Clifford quite a bit. And I, I just, I feel like, yeah, there's always room for growth, but how much better could Sean Clifford get in his sixth season at Penn State? And is it is it worth it for 
5% improvement to kind of delay maybe the, the development of Drew Alar or even Christian Veyu. And what's that plan going to be? Well, James pretty much said at the start of spring, excited about year two to see what Sean Clifford could do in Mike Hirsch's offense. And the other guys are just going to have to kind of find their way in there. They're going to get some stray reps here and there. And it was, it was Sean who got the majority of the reps in spring. And I don't know that I would have done it that way. I just think that looking at this Penn State team, Doug, and what, what they lost, what they have back, and looking at the schedule, looking where they got to go, I think this is going to sound terrible. I think they can go, they can go seven and six, maybe with Sean Clifford, or maybe they can go, uh, you know, or I should say six and six. I'm not counting the bowl game. You can go six and six or seven and five with Sean Clifford, or maybe they go six and six and five and seven, and they take a couple more bumps with a guy like Drew Aller. What, what would it be? What's worth it in the long run? You know what I mean? And I just think that was a decision that Mike Yersitz. And, and James Franklin had to make, and I think they've made it. It's Sean Clifford's job, and the rest of the guys, they're going to get reps when they can. And it kind of showed up in the spring game. I mean, Drew LR and uh, Bo Pergula entered in January, but and they did get some work, but they really didn't get, I think, extended looks. And I, I'm not sure Penn State really knows what they have in them yet. They looked, They made some mistakes. They looked a little nervous, which was to be expected, but – I just think going into August, it's going to be it's going to be more number 14. And I think it'll probably be they number two. And I just don't know. I think when you get a five star on campus, I think you got to kind of maybe reach rethink or reshape some of the things you normally do, because the upside risk, the risk uh, and the upside of a player like that, I think outweighs everything else, Mm. even even in the present. And like I said, I look at this Penn State team going into the fall, and I just don't see a team that is going to be as good as they were last year. I think they lost six games last year. I don't know if we'll get to see Drew Aller this year unless something happens either to Sean Clifford or he something phenomenal happens in August. But I just don't think Dougie's going to get the chance to really turn heads in August. Interesting. Okay. I mean, because from the outside, everybody gets excited about the five-star, but, but it's uh, it's curious to see how a head coach handles it. Yeah. And I guess in the end, I'm not shocked that this is the way that James Franklin yeah, but went, the, even if it's think, not, well, we would do it. We would maybe I, put the kid in. I think the ramifications are, are, are go beyond Drew Aller too, because if you're, if you're a five-star quarterback, you know, Penn State's after you and you're looking you're looking at what they do with Drew Aller this spring. Now, every every talent evaluator uh, on the recruiting trail had nothing but great things to say about Drew Aller and what he could be one day once he gets comfortable. The arm, the arm talent, you know, what he did and what he could do. And if you're a five-star, you know, a couple years down the road and you're looking at Penn State and James Franklin, you could say, hey, look, Christian Hackenberg was a five-star quarterback. His one year at Bill with Bill O'Brien, he, he arrived in August. They had quarterbacks on campus. Bill said it's his job. He's going to be the quarterback. A lot ruffled a lot of feathers. He had his best year of all of, all, of the three years he had at Penn State. Clearly, his first year with with uh, Bill O'Brien uh, was his best year. What did he do under James Franklin? He he regressed the last two years. He just got steadily steadily worse. So if you're a five star quarterback. I mean, James has had two five-star quarterbacks, and maybe maybe the plan will be different in August, but 
just a little, he just feels like he's a little, you know, a little, a little slow to warm up to these guys. Oh. And I don't know that that's maybe that's not really a great selling point. If it's not, if you're not going to consistently get five stars, maybe you could, I mean, I think you gotta, you gotta finesse that a little bit. I don't, what I saw from Drew Alar, he didn't look like he was really ready anywhere near ready. And I don't know that three off season months is going to change anything. I just wish they would have maybe given the young guys a little bit more, uh, a little bit more work with the, with the first team offense. Okay. And we'll see how it plays out. Losing Jahan Dotson on offense. He's great. Yes. I like Parker Washington. Yep. And it, but if you're looking for where Penn state maybe should improve the most compared to your go, is it the run game? Nicholas Singleton, some young guys in the backfield, or is there somewhere else, Bob? Where's Penn State going to make a jump in a positive way? Well, they need to. It has to be the running game. I don't know. I don't know if they will. Nicholas Singleton, the five star from Pennsylvania, I, I've heard nothing but fantastic, fantastic praise for the kid. He is, uh, by all accounts, the real deal. Has rare size, six zero two twenty. He can and he can move. Uh, they were, the players were talking about him in spring. A guy that even though he's big, much like Saquon Barkley, can make can make something out of nothing, and he's going to be real tough to track down in the open field. I think that is a legit comp for him. But that I don't know if you remember this, Doug, but you know Barkley had three thousand yard seasons at Penn State, and including that that 2015 year where their offensive line was a disaster. He still got a thousand yards, and they mm-hmm. they played a night game. In Columbus against, I think, I think that Ohio State team and that defense might have been better than the 2014 team. Ohio State ended up rolling those guys. It was like 38 to 10. Barkley went for 190 on Ohio State, and he had a 45-yard touchdown callback due to a penalty. He was just making, uh, making all of it on his own. Singleton is probably that kind of player. They also like Kevon Lee, but he is not as dynamic uh, as Nick Singleton. The bigger issue, though, Doug, is – Their offensive line uh, really, I thought, regressed uh, last season. Uh, A couple of players really, I thought that we're going to have big years, didn't for a number of reasons. They lost, they lose three starters off that line, and they they don't have any depth. They have they have a couple guys coming in in August, and uh, a FCS guy who's going to compete for a guard spot. But they went through spring practice with essentially five healthy offensive linemen that they liked. So. If you want to sound the alarm, that's where really it begins, because I think they can't afford any injuries. You saw that offensive line play against not a great Ohio State defense last year in Columbus. They had a couple of moments, but they still only ended up scoring 24 points. They couldn't run the ball. The other issue was Mike Yersich didn't really have any interest in running the ball. And I think that kind of rankled James Franklin down the stretch. And I think there were probably a couple of difficult conversations that went on behind the scenes. Mike is aware that they need to run the ball just to take the pressure off of Clifford. Uh, And they do have some talented runners, but you cannot, I don't think you can put the ball in Sean Clifford's hands 40 times a game and expect to beat Ohio state, Michigan and Michigan state. If you can't be balanced, um, if you can't, you know, protect a lead in the fourth quarter and run five minutes off the clock to secure a win. Something Michigan was able to do, I think, at times last year. You're not going to win many games. And I, I don't know where Penn State is at. They must be able to be better in the running game. I don't know 
if they have the horses up front and they have a couple talented players, they don't have enough of them. So I'm very, very skeptical about this Penn state offense. And I'm actually skeptical about the defense because they lost about a half dozen NFL caliber players off that. And that, that when I I'm going to ask like, where are they going to step back the most? Is it the secondary Jaquan briskers as good as it gets at safety? I still love Joey Porter, but they're losing a lot of guys there and lost some good linebackers too. Right. They have a good safety back in Jair Browning. He, he, he's a, not the same kind of safety that Brisker is. Brisker was a physical presence who could also make plays in the passing game. I think Jair is, a, is really one of the better ball hawks in the nation. He's going to play in the NFL. Joey Porter, I think, is an NFL corner. Uh, they, they have a couple other young corners they like. They have issues at linebacker, and they have issues. I mean, they like some players, but you're just not going to replace – a player like Arnold Ebichetti, who they got, they didn't, they got fortunate with because he he was a transfer from Temple, who really, really raised his game. I mean, I think he could go in the first round or go early mm-hmm. second round. They have some guys they like, but I mean, when you talk about Arnold, watching him, you know, this is my twenty first year watching uh, Penn State play, and there's only a couple guys that got off the edge like him. One was Tamba Hali. And he had a pretty good career in the NFL. There was other, there was another player by the name of Aaron Maven who was undersized, a different body type than Arnold. But this guy was 6'3", 250, and he could move. I just, you know, if you can't rush the passer or you can't impact, if you can't at least, you know, rattle the passer, it's going to be a long day for that secondary. They also lost two really good linebackers, and I don't know that they have the bodies to replace them, but it will be interesting to see what the new defensive coordinator, Manny Diaz, does, because I think he's going to do things a little bit differently than Brent Pry did. All right, so the final question. Penn State, as you noted, if Sean Clifford doesn't get hurt, Penn State's probably 7-0 and going into the Ohio State game. Correct. They play right with Michigan, a playoff team. They're ahead Correct. with four minutes to play. They play uh, a, a tight one with Michigan State. Michigan State goes to a New Year's Six game. Yeah. So you can look at Penn State and say, hey, six losses. You could also look and say, hey, you know, kind of right there. You maybe, yep. They were maybe borderline. with If they're healthy, they're a playoff contender last year. They would have yes. been in the mix into November. Can they be that this year? Or they just did they lose too much on defense? And with the quarterback stuff, is this more of a step back year for Penn State? I think it's a step back here. I really do. I, I do believe that at some point um, Nick Singleton is going to really become a force. Um, yeah, you know, they'll use other backs, but I just think when he, he's going to separate and he's going to be a guy that's going to be able to, you know, what, what the great thing about Barkley when he was at Penn state was the defense could have the play, you know, covered and he could make a guy miss in the hole, or he would just jump over somebody like Superman and go 50 yards for a touchdown, or he he would do that thing like he did in the Rose Bowl, where he'd go, the play should have been a four-yard loss, and he turned it into like a 77-yard touchdown. You know, Singleton can do some of those things, but I mean, they could have nine guys drafted, and that is that might be the most, I think, that James Franklin has had, and and a a couple of those guys, we're talking about potential first or second-round players, when you talk about Jahan Dotson, Brisker, Arnold Ebichetti, uh, there's a couple other guys, but to lose that volume of talent and then and that was and you only won you only won seven games with that talent. I it speaks there there is there's there's a there's a disconnect. The fan base has picked up on that. They have to be much better in close games. And the, the biggest problem Penn State has had the last couple of years, they're eleven and eleven since the start of the 2020 season, is they 
James James wants the offense that Joan Moorhead ran in 2016 and 2017. They scored a lot of points, a lot of chunk plays, right? They were able to protect the ball, um, you know, and they, they were able to run the ball uh, no matter how, no matter how you looked at that running game. And I, I think in big 10 play and in the game, they beat Auburn. The offense never scored more than 30 points. I don't think they got to 30 points. So you see what Ryan Day and Ohio State are doing. It looks to me like last year at Ohio State, they, they, were, they were completely comfortable, Doug, winning a game 45-31. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter who the opponent was. They were very comfortable. If we give up 27 points, who cares? We're going to score 42, and the defense hopefully will make some plays during the game to get a couple of stops. Penn State can't play that way because Penn State does not have that kind of talent. They are right now, they are deficient, I think, along the offensive line. There is no way they're going to replace Jahan Dotson. I don't care. I don't care how fast these guys are. He was a rare, rare creature uh, to make plays at Penn State. They don't have him. How, what would that offensive look like without Jahan Dotson last year? Yeah. The guy had 1,200 yards. You know, he caught 92 passes. He made tough catches. He made Sean Clifford look good. I hope Sean Clifford plays better. But when you take that weapon out of the passing game um, and there's a five-star on the bench just kind of idling, and, the, you know, what's going to happen if they start one and two? What is going to happen? Um, I just think it's, a, fan, it's a, a very interesting year. And James talks about upgrading the talent base, and maybe they have. But their frontline talent, other than maybe – Five or six players, I don't know that they can match up with with uh, the better teams in the Big Ten. And I think it's going to be a very challenging year for Penn State. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun to watch James Franklin navigate through this. You're going to want to read the coverage at PennLive.com. Nobody covers Penn State better. Bob Flounders, thanks for joining us on the College Football Survivor Show. You got it, Douglas. Joined now by Cade Webb, talking Oklahoma State. He's from the Feels Like 45 podcast. Cade. Thanks for joining me here on the College Football Survivor Show. Oh, yeah. Happy to be on, and thank you for having me. Good to be on. So I know we usually start with quarterback talk here, but I'm interested about the defensive side of the ball with Oklahoma State, obviously, because they were so good last year, and Jim Knowles is gone. How good defensively is Oklahoma State going to be again this year? I'm sure there's a culture of defense there. It doesn't change just because one coach leaves. I think something had to be established there. How'd they look this spring and what'd you learn about the Oklahoma yeah. state defense? Well, I, I think you're definitely going down the right path. And, and as me and my co-host Dustin Ragusa talk about uh, ad nauseum, uh, the defense last year was um, it was shockingly good. Uh, we expected mm-hmm. good things, but it was, it was beyond what we could have probably ever expected. Um, there was veteran talent all over the place. There was new talent that, uh, kind of came out of nowhere. Colin Oliver being a true freshman All-American is is one that nobody really expected him to come in and be like that. And so, you know, if you fast forward, um, there are several key departures, notably in the secondary um, with Trey Sterling headed to the NFL draft, Jared Bernard Converse and, and Tanner McAllister all hitting the portal. But there's reason to believe that that things will be okay. Um, I've said it all offseason. If the secondary is just average, it'll play into the probably the strength on this football team, which is, which is the defensive line um, headlined by Colin Oliver and Trace Ford uh, and, and fifth year senior Tyler Lacey uh, and not to mention Brock Barton. I mean, they're, they're absolutely loaded on the defensive line. So if the, if a young secondary can just be average, 
I think they will be a top three defense in the Big 12, maybe even top two. Wow. Okay. Is the scheme changing? Is there is there much different about how they're going to attack people now that Jim Knowles is gone? We've heard it all offseason from, from Derek Mason, former head coach of Vanderbilt, now the, the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma State. Um, I think he liked what he saw last year. Okay. Frankly, I think there's been a lot of talk about keeping the foundation, uh, keeping what guys are comfortable with and introducing some of his his flavor. And um, I think if you can turn on the tape and watch Vanderbilt. There's a lot of similarities there, um, even when he was at Auburn um, just last year as defensive coordinator there. Uh, there's there's some crossover. So I expect it to look similar um, with maybe some wrinkles thrown in. All right. Let's get to the quarterback then. Just where you usually start. Spencer Sanders. Redshirt senior, nice to have a veteran quarterback uh, returning. Did you did you learn anything about him this spring? <laughs> is there anything different, or is this just like he's the guy? We know what's up. You can win with him, and you know he threw for two hundred eighteen yards a game last year, third in the Big Twelve, like pretty good. Or is there something new with Spencer Sanders? Well, it's interesting you say that, and and you know, I, Spencer Sanders is is a little bit of an enigma among Oklahoma State fans. He's uh, been around. I mean, you already said it. He's a red shirt senior, so he's he's played some football at Oklahoma State. And we've we've seen a lot of turnovers. We've seen a, a lot of electricity uh, from him, and so it really, for me, what we learned last year was that you can win with him, and that you can win really big with him. I mean, they were a yard away from the college football playoff with Spencer Sanders running the show. He yep. really probably is getting a, a bad rap for what was ultimately, you know, really one poor game in the Big 12 title game last year. Granted, came at the worst possible time, but um, he had a really, really good season. And um, I expect more. I expect him to be uh, even better taking care of the football, but I would I would expect that they don't try to run him quite as much. They they don't have as much depth at the quarterback spot. Obviously, behind Spencer Sanders, uh, your backup quarterback is probably Gunnar Gundy, Mike Gundy's son. So okay. not a ton of depth going on there. So I'd be surprised if they ran him a, around a lot. But uh, I expect also the offense to spread it out a little bit and um, expect him to to kind of be the focal point of everything and and probably air it out quite a bit. So again, I think. Spencer Sanders, what you learned last year uh, is that you can win with him. And then in the spring, he's just he's the guy. Um, He's very clearly the guy. I'm not anti-interception if they're the right kinds of interceptions. Right. I think sometimes to make plays, you have to take risks. Twelve picks last year. Is that something that did that come up this spring? You sort of talked about he does have a tendency maybe to turn it over sometimes. Is this a constant talking point? Is it worth it because you get some bang for the buck on the other end? Or is this something, as Mike Gundy saying, hey, man, you know, let's try to throw six picks this season instead of 12. How much do the interceptions come up? Well, I I think you nailed it. What you you give up with Spencer Sanders and turnovers, you get in in jaw-dropping athleticism and – um, electricity, as I've already mentioned. I mean, you, you turn on the Bedlam tape last year. He, I mean, with a 37-yard option dash uh, into the end zone in the fourth quarter, brought Oklahoma State back to life and, and really jolted the team forward and ended up winning that game. And I think that's what Spencer Sanders gives you. And I think Mike mm-hmm. Gundy has been very clear about this. Um, and even I agree with this, that you'll you'll live with some of those mistakes if he can just be himself. Okay. Um, you want to bottle up some of that. And again, 12 picks, 
Seven of those, believe it or not, came against Baylor. <laughs> so seven in two games against wow. Baylor last year. So five in 11 other games. So really, he whatever they were doing in the back end of that defense was giving him some issues. But, you know, I, I think they're fine with him. I, I think they would love to have a couple of those back. But ultimately, I think they're, they're going to let Spencer be Spencer more so uh, than they probably ever have been. All right. So if we think about where, again, you said Oklahoma State is – a fraction away from being a playoff team a year ago. Is there an area, maybe it's the secondary where you mentioned some guys they lost, where you do think Oklahoma State, from what you saw this spring, might take a step back in a certain area in 2022? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think the secondary is one. Another one that I don't I don't know if people are talking about as much is, is probably running back. Jalen Warren was, was an over 1,000-yard rusher last year, was a grad transfer out of Utah State, and really – kind of stole the show. Uh, he he did not enter the year as a starting running back, but very quickly uh, became the feature back and was fantastic in the red zone, provided some toughness in between the 20s and and some elusiveness. They could split him out, uh, throw him the ball a little bit, and I they're not going to have as much of that. Um, Dominic Richardson is expected to get the majority of the carries. Uh, tr- uh, redshirt sophomore, I believe, out of, out of Bishop McGinnis, Oklahoma. Uh, and... Not a lot there that you can compare uh, Jalen Warren and Dominic Richardson to. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit of running back by committee. Dominic Richardson, Ollie Gordon, a true freshman four-star out of Texas, is a name to watch, not just for Oklahoma State, but in the Big 12. Ollie Gordon is is probably going to be a household name by by the end of his career in Stillwater. Um, so if it, if there was one outside of the secondary for me, I think running back could potentially be uh, – a a hiccup for this team. Okay. And where they'll be really good, maybe even better than last year. Is that defensive line or is that somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, defensive line they're they're going to be loaded as I've already said. I mean, I, I would put that defensive line up, not just, not just number one in the conference. I think that's far and away the case, but I would put them up against most units in the country, okay. maybe outside of an Alabama and an Ohio state. I think they, they have that much returning talent up there and that much returning production. So what you're talking about is is pretty proven up there. I think wide receiver continues to be an embarrassment of riches at Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. Now they they lose Tay Martin uh, to el- eligibility, but they're going to bring back so many key players: Brennan Presley, um, John Paul Richardson, Jaden Bray, a true freshman last year who who played a lot. Um, I expect that to be a very, very solid group. And, and by all accounts out of spring football, out of spring camp, uh, Spencer Sanders and Jaden Bray have, have a connection. So I'm very excited to see what's going on there at wide receiver, but I think it will be another year where, where there's no shortage of options out there. We're here with Cade Webb. He's a co-host of the feels like 45 podcast about Oklahoma state. So let's get down to brass tacks and listen, man, as you noted, they're number five in the playoff rankings going in to championship game weekend. 21-16 losers to Baylor. If Oklahoma State wins that game, who knows what the committee does with Cincinnati and Oklahoma State. I know we talked about it a lot on this podcast. We certainly thought there was a chance that the committee would have put Oklahoma State as a one-loss Big 12 champ ahead of Cincinnati. And, and people need to be reminded just how good Oklahoma State has been in the Mike Gundy era. You go back the last 14 years, you give Mike Gundy three years to kind of get his feet under him. Last 14 years at Oklahoma State, these are the number of wins. Nine, nine, 11, 12, eight, 10, seven, 
10, 10, 10, 7, 8, 8, and then 12 and 2 last year. This is a consistent top 15 type of program, Cade. They were right there for the playoff last year. Are they a playoff contender again in 2022, or are there some things that might hold them back from being that? Well, they they did not enter last year as a playoff contender. So I don't think anybody really had it on their radar. I I had Oklahoma State as about an eight to nine win team last year going into the season. That changed pretty quickly once we saw some things. I, I, I thought the offense was better than I expected, but the defense was unbelievable. The defense won them several games last year. So to answer your question going into this year, I wonder how much they can lean on the defense. They, again, they won probably two or three games for, for Oklahoma state last year. So if that defense is, is back, like returns to the mean that we're used to in Stillwater, you're probably looking at a nine win team, but because it was so dominant, um, they, they were able to get 12. So if, if it were me, I would expect them to be back in Dallas in the big 12 title game. That that's been okay. my prediction and, and my co-host Dustin's prediction uh, all off season. One, you don't really know what you have out in the rest of the Big 12. Oklahoma, you know, you don't really know with Brent Venables coming in. Texas, still a question mark. And so you look at returning talent and where it matters, quarterback, defensive line in this conference. I mean, you look at Oklahoma State, they've got the pieces. And so if it were me, I would expect Oklahoma State back in the Big 12 title game. Uh, and that puts them back in a potential dark horse uh, college football playoff. And I don't know if they're going to be number five entering conference championship weekend again they had to go 11 and 1 to do that uh, and the schedule lines up a little bit tougher than it did last year but um it, i expect them in dallas and uh, if the chips fall that way then it wouldn't be a huge surprise to see them uh sneak into the playoff this year he's Cade webb he's the co-host of the feels like 45 podcast i think you guys figured it out for listening to Cade. if you want to know what's going up what's going on with oklahoma state football try that podcast this is an interesting program Jim Knowles is a big loss, but Mike Gundy is a consistent winner. They have a veteran quarterback, which not every playoff contender has. There's always skill position talent uh, in Stillwater. And you think about this defensive line, there's a lot of pieces in place here for Oklahoma State. So, Cade, thanks so much for your time. And thanks for joining us on the College Football Survivor Show. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. And we'll wrap up here on the College Football Survivor Show with a very special guest. He knows Baylor inside now. We're going to talk about the Baylor Bears. It is Shahan. Why are you here? You're off. I told everybody you were off. And you weren't supposed to be in the country, but you are. Why? Well... I apparently have beef with the nation of India. Uh, Mm. We submitted a visa request and my entire family got approved except for me. And it turns out that apparently if you're a journalist, including one who breaks down Zach Calzada film, apparently It means that you have to fill out a completely separate application that has to be processed like physically instead of like the 24 hour turnaround e-visa. So we tried to do that and the embassy lost my application for a while. And uh, so I missed my flight. And so now I'm hanging out at home just, uh, you know, doing <laughs> doing me by myself while the rest of my family right now is in India. 
That is unbelievable. I feel like we should have submitted this podcast to the government of India and said, this is not journalism. It's fine. <laughs> it's just this. Yeah, I, I feel like it was a like a crazy application that you have to fill out as a journalist to be able to to go. Like, actually, we got some feedback and like there were tiny details that were like out of place. So they're like, well, you need a result. And I'm like, I already missed my flight. This is pointless. I don't know why you're, why you're even talking to me about this. It's crazy. It, and I mean, my, my journalism primarily happens like in this like eight by eight office that I have and not much anywhere else. So I, I don't understand the issue. Uh, India, if you're, if you're listening, hit me up. Let me know <laughs> how I can be allowed back in the country. Um, but yeah, so wow. instead, I'm just hanging at home. I'm going to do a solo trip later this week because what else is there to do when your wife's out of town? Um, been eating real bad because there's not the peer pressure to like mm. eat like a human. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a it's been quite a week. That is wild. I'm sorry that it worked out that way. Uh, I volunteered. I said we could fire you. For a little bit. <laughs> now you have a full-time employer of CBS I, I do, Sports. I do. And I don't know if if they were willing to go the extra mile and fire you for a week so you could go to India journalism free. That's that's how much we love you here, Shahan. We would fire you because we love you. But no, instead you're here to talk Baylor. Because I said I said, well, get I had a different Baylor person lined up. They had to bail. It's like, well, do I know anybody else who watched the Baylor spring game? And so here we are. Here we are. Can you believe that instead of going to like a big, vibrant Indian wedding, I sat in my home office and watched Baylor, LSU, some of Texas, their spring games, Texas Tech. I, I watched their spring games in my office instead of going to a wedding that's that is something <laughs> that is some way that i could have spent my weekends through tears with a bag of doritos why did this happen <laughs> why is journalism doing this to me oh so anyway we'll get back to normal next week we've been doing all these wraparounds we appreciate everybody who's hopped on to help us do this but you know you're here for the shahanness of it all so this is a nice little bonus an unexpected bonus for everybody that you get a little shahan at the end of this part two podcast of our spring game wraparound. So let's do Baylor, Shahan. Let's do Baylor. I always start with quarterback questions. I thought Gary Bohannon was the quarterback, but there's a, there's a quarterback battle going on at Baylor spring football. Why is there a battle? Well, for people who watched Baylor last year, of course, in the Big 12 championship game, Gary Bohannon was out and Blake Shapin came in, played the, an incredible first half, to be quite honest. I mean, showed some arm stuff that we really didn't even see from Bohannon last year. Uh, in the second half, <laughs> Oklahoma State was like, oh, we see what you're trying to do there and took all of it away. And it was over from that point. But Baylor, of course, manages to hold on to win the Big 12. And that I, I think that from the coaching staff's perspective, Blake Shapin did enough in that last game, but also just kind of the last two games after Gary Bohannon's injury to at least deserve his shot. I still anticipate that Gary Bohannon's the guy. I, I don't think it's going to be sort of a a real tough competition. One thing that they said is that they do anticipate that they could name a starter after 
spring camp, which like they're going through their interviews and film review right now. That doesn't sound to me like a battle that's completely open. That's going to go all the way until week one. I think that from their perspective, they really view it as look, Blake Shapin earned his shot. Chiron drones uh, of the redshirt freshman earned a shot. They're not going to, you know, they're probably not going to hit, but they did earn the opportunity for the battle to be open. Okay. So we don't want to call it a competition in name only, but it's not like they're giving up on Gary Bohannon. He just kind of got hurt, <laughs> cracked the door slightly. And um, so they're just, they're, they're giving guys a look. Okay. No, I, that, that makes more sense to me. Uh, we know how good Baylor was last year, Shahan 12 and two beats old miss in the sugar bowl. Um, beat Oklahoma state in the big 12 championship game. This is, this is a, this was a legit kind of right there in the mix um, contender in a lot of ways, losses to Oklahoma state and TCU. So are there areas where they could be even better this year? Where, where might Baylor actually improve off uh, winning 11 games last year or 12? Excuse I think me. I really yeah, at 12. I think that I really do have to look at quarterback play because for so much of last year, it was Gary Bohannon being a game manager. It was him making the throws that were there. And I think heading into year two with him as a starter, again, potentially, the, the battle is still open. Um, I, I want to see him, I think, grow as a passer, as somebody who throws guys open, as somebody who attacks down the field is a big part of it. He has a big arm. That's not the the issue here. It's not that he can't make the throws, but they didn't ask him to do a whole lot of that. It was very, like, ruthlessly efficient is, I guess, the way that I describe Baylor's offense for most of 2021. And so... I, I do think that maybe there'll be a little bit more of a downfield passing component. I'd be curious with some of the receivers that they got coming up uh, for people who watched the sugar bowl. There was a receiver Monterey Baldwin who had like an, an end around that he basically ran for a touchdown before anybody even noticed that he was gone because he's like that fast. So I'd be curious if they do attack down the field a little bit more this upcoming year, they will have to do it without Tyquan Thornton, who was their number one receiver last year. But th- that's really the place where I think that they could improve the most. Uh, the offensive line is going to be in a good place. They bring back, four or five starters and I think that their defensive line could take another step as well the question for them is behind the defensive line because they do Mm. bring back uh, basically all their defensive linemen but Jalen Petrie could be one of the first safeties taken in the NFL draft he's gone Um, and and they're I think they're going to kind of replace the guys who they're losing with guys who are a little different from them guys who are you know I I know that um, Petrie was somebody who they attacked off the edge a whole lot I I think that the guy who's going to replace him Lorando Johnson's a little bit more of a coverage safety so it's going to be different that's the biggest thing so um, you know maybe it ends up being that they're a little bit more base and maybe they you know they need their defensive line to create some of those opportunities a little more but um you know I, I think that their defensive line has a chance to be really good and I think that offensively I, I'd be looking at Gary Bohannon to be the guy who takes a step forward so big gaping holes anywhere anything where it's like oh man that's going to be a huge problem compared to a year ago well the big one for me is it's not a hole, but they're really young at receiver. Uh, they lost Tyquan Thornton, um, you know, again, who I, I mentioned. He ran a 4-2-7 at the NFL draft. I think he's better than people realize that he was last year. Um, they lost RJ Sneed, who was somebody who contributed for them a whole lot. He transferred to Colorado. And so they're really going to rely on young guys to step up. They have a lot of young guys who have contributed. They have actually a real old guy, Gavin Holmes, who's coming back for, I believe, the sixth year, but he's dealt with injuries for the last three years or so. So I 
you know, I, I think that that's the big question for me. I also want to see who they kind of rotate in at safety because Jalen Petrie is that talented a player, of course, and he's not a true safety. He was like their, their star role, as they call it. Um, and, and then JT Woods is the other guy who also ran a four, three something at the NFL draft uh, combine. And so they're going to need some guys to fill in those roles. They like who they have there. The two corners are, are both gone too, but again, they kind of like who they have there. I, I think that if I had to pick a role where I want to see people step up the most, it probably would be at wide receiver. Okay. So again, this is, this is a Baylor program. Again, sometimes you're a team, sometimes you're a program. This is a program. Not, you know, it's under Dave Aranda now, but they've won under multiple coaches and Dave Aranda is building something here. They have a really interesting game with BYU in week two. We've talked a lot about BYU on this podcast. Baylor beat BYU last year, one of two regular season games that BYU lost. We know Baylor played with everybody in the Big 12 last year. Is that going to happen again? Are they going to be a team that we are going to be talking about on this show? This is a playoff show. Will we talk Baylor in 2022, Shahan? Because are they going to be in the mix? I think they will be in the mix. Uh, that, that BYU game is a big game, I think, for both of these teams. Uh, whichever team wins that game probably enters our conversation for at least a little bit. And um, and I think that Baylor matches up pretty well with them. I actually think that they're going to have some bigger corners, which might actually help them out against the style of, uh, of offense that BYU played against them last year. Uh, you know, I look at the schedule and I look at the Big 12 and I look at, I guess, just college football as a whole. I mean, we could potentially be looking at only two of the four teams that we kind of talk about as mainstays being mainstays, right? I mean, Ohio State and Alabama are the only two that I kind of feel super comfortable will be there. Georgia will be there at the end. We'll see what Oklahoma can do. I've obviously been high on USC, but I think it does create an opening where who knows? Somebody could step into that role like Cincinnati did last year. And, um, you know, I look at, at Baylor's schedule. Oklahoma's going to be rebuilding a little bit. Texas has some things to be excited about, but they also haven't done it as yet. Uh, I mean, you know, Oklahoma State will be pretty good, but I think that Baylor has a chance to be better than them. West Virginia could be improved. Like, there's teams that I am optimistic about, but there's nobody who I think comes into the season that, that I feel like Baylor shouldn't feel like they can beat. Okay. So that's a good thing for Baylor. Like, Baylor's not going anywhere. This is not a one-year wonder. This is not like, oh, we lost a couple NFL guys and that's it for us. This is a real program that is establishing something in the Big 12, and I do think we'll be talking about them. I agree with that. I don't I don't think they're going anywhere. Week 2 BYU is going to determine a lot of things. So we do have – we pre-recorded some stuff, and we thought Shaham was going to be on the other side of the world. So the, the pay show, the Apple podcast show this week, you guys pay $2.99 a month. You get these four bonus apps a month. So it's less than a dollar a show. We continued our Mount Rushmore defensive backs. We took a week off from Mount Rushmore last week. This time, Shahan and I picked the four best defensive backs in the history of the playoff. And then once we get through this, Shahan, we've done three straight weeks of wrapping up spring football. We've hit basically everybody. Now we can get back to fighting and arguing about <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, we, we don't know whether Twitter's still going to exist uh, in a week mm. or whatever. I don't know. So we got to figure out uh, new places to fight. Yeah, no, that's good. No, we'll fight. We'll fight. So so stick with us on the College Football Survivor Show. We wanted to give you guys a lot of info during spring, right? Because there's stuff happening all over the country. You can't keep track of it. I hope these past three weeks, especially with the double episode this week that we brought you information about the best teams in college football 
And then we're going to get back to analyzing. We're going to get back to looking at the sport in a way that I don't think other podcasts look at it. They're not doing Mount Rushmore as a defensive backs. I know that. So we appreciate you guys being part of it. Thanks to all the guests who joined us this week on the double episode. Shahan, I'm sorry to be talking to you. It's okay. It's okay. It's a it's a good time for me to just like hang out, not have to do too much. Uh, watch the new Barry. Watch the new Better Call Saul tonight. Like you know, it's it's a big TV week for me. I think is what it's going to end up being. I thought maybe this could be like a, a time of self reflection, of self improvement. Of your wife gets home and there's a new Shahan. There's just going to be a bigger Shahan, not a new Shahan. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. I'll I'll try to clean up maybe before uh before she gets here, but that's all about all I can promise. I have been there, my friend. The last half hour mad scramble before the wife gets home from a trip. <laughs> you don't want her to see what you've done to the house while she was gone. So good luck with that. We'll be back with regular programming next week. For now, thanks to you guys for listening. And that was the college football survivor show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. 